What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. This week, we decided to put a clip of the Tuesday night spaces that I do every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern time uh, for this episode. So be sure to tune in. We talk about earnings. We talk about uh, the precious metals, overall macro economy. We talk a lot about great topics, and we had a lot of great guests. So tune in for another action-packed episode. And as always, it's not financial advice. So please do not take it as financial advice. And if you're listening on audio, subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Hit that subscribe button. Help the show grow. And yeah, let's me bring in great guests. So enough for me. Let's get into the episode. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Brandon, back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. But first, before we get started, a little disclaimer. I am not a financial advisor and the guest is not giving financial advice. So everything you hear on this podcast is strictly opinion and should not be taken as financial advice. We disclose if we have any holdings discussed in this podcast and you should not be following us as financial advisors. You should discuss this with professionals before you get involved or invested. And as always, it's not financial advice. So please, please, please take this strictly as our opinions and for entertainment purposes only. Now let's get into the show. Go to gold because I, I I love Weimar. I love Nostra's perspective. Did you guys see the momentum in gold today? Yeah, I did. That It's actually a really odd move. I mean, um, stocks are up a lot, so it's like a risk off day. But And real yields have been rising too because obviously inflation has been falling and uh, interest rates are up. Uh, the, the flip side is the DXY has been pretty weak, but it really wasn't today. So it's interesting that it's rising. One thing I'll highlight, though, is China dropped their treasury holdings once again, a new 13-year low. Um, even the person in the Reuters article called out that that might have some geopolitical implications. Uh, Do you have the number? How much was the reduction? I think it was like 20 or $30 billion off the top of my head. Um, but they've been doing that for months now, and they've been increasing their gold holdings. And frankly, so have a lot of countries. I mean, we've been in a bit of a central bank gold buying cycle. I suspect that's providing a lot of the support. Um, so, yeah, it's a bunch of stuff. But gold's actually really strong, given where the rest of the economy is. Sorry, my music's on. Yeah, I mean, gold has been has been ripping, too. I, I think, like, the precious metals have been have been doing fairly well as well. Yeah, um, silver's over 25. Gold, so, yeah, silver's been doing really well. Um, and you know, what's like kind of interesting. Let me see if I can find it. Bob, um, tweeted out, um, Bob tweeted out, uh, just basically like how the precious metals perform over time, like a yearly chart. And it seems like always towards the end of the year, um, we always see like gold and silver. Yeah, Brandon, I, I think you're talking about the aggregate seasonal adjustment of, of the price of gold, right? Yeah. Yeah, because the I think June 30th tends to be the low, and then it rallies towards the end of the year into January. And that's usually because there's a lot of Asian holidays in the fall. Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, I just posted the silver one, and then here's the uh, here's the gold one. Uh, yeah, I always found it like kind of I found it kind of interesting, but um, yeah. And, and I do see we have uh, Bill back. Thanks for coming back, Bill. I appreciate that. How are you doing? Oh, where where'd the Marxist go? 
You scared to calm me away, Bill? I started shouting. Well, no, I I figured two Austrians here versus a commie. This was going to be a knockdown dragout. That's why I came back. No, but he was lecturing. He was, it was just, just presenting long, his lecture. It wasn't even lecturing. It was a word. It was a word salad. And it was really hard. Uh, and like, look, to, to, I feel bad. He, was, he wasn't I mean, interested in any discussion. He just wanted an audience where he could just spout his word salad. Isn't that odd, Bill? That a commie is selfish. Isn't that odd? It is odd. I, I hard to believe, actually. <laughs> no, but I actually, um, you, there's some smart people here, so it's now. Uh, now it's interesting. I got to bring my A game when Weimar and Nostra are here and David <laughs> and Group. <laughs> well, I, 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 I thought you were in that category. Me, Bill. I was like, I, man. I <laughs> but yeah, Bill, well, welcome back. I appreciate it. I thought you weren't going to name me for a second. I was like, oh, man. I, uh, no, 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 no. No, there's actually people down down in the audience, too, that are uh, really sharp as well that if they want to come up. But uh... So, Weimar, what's happening with uh, the bank results so far? It's kind of been an interesting first pass of uh bank reports what do you yeah, think yeah nims, nims are definitely yeah, nims are compressing yeah, yeah. right uh gsebs are fairly strong i mean city was a little weak i'd say wells fargo was decent jp morgan was excellent but no one i was not surprised at all but jp morgan they've been a huge beneficiary of all this um two bank i mean the two that have done poorly uh in my opinion, although the stock didn't reflect it, like PNC was pretty bad for a super regional and they cut guidance. And I agree. Yeah. I, PNC looked at yeah, the and, and they were up. So I was like, okay, whatever. Uh, Schwab, you know, I, that was one I never really even understood why they had a run to be honest, but they did. Um, well, it was their bank sub, their bank sub mm-hmm. was severely under. Yeah. Yeah. They had, um, yeah. Then they lost a lot of money by being unhedged, having the securities, but they're in a yeah, much I don't think anybody business. was worried. I, I don't think anybody was worried about Schwab yeah. for the broker, but I, I think they were worried that they would need to raise capital. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and that's the thing that's coming too for all of them, so they know that. Um, the one that reported after hours, which did look bad, uh, Western Alliance, but you know they're touting the fact that they managed to grow deposits, um, and they sold off a bunch of assets in the quarter. I think it was like three and a half billion or something like that. Um, the other one that was bad was State Street, which, you know, isn't really as relevant for your typical bank. That's a little bit more like your BNY Mellon, your Northern Trust, et cetera. Although they, they've had some issues too, obviously. And their their NIM compression caught people, I think, a little bit by surprise because of how, you know, big they are and how they're kind of more of a custody type bank and they earn a lot of fee revenue and stuff like that. So that's been interesting. The one I've been actually paying the most attention to are the little tiny banks sort of under 10 billion and they're kind of all over the place. Um, but one more or less consistent thing is they all, they all, and this is, I think a lot of the smaller banks are doing this cause they don't want to seem like they're uh, imprudent. They're citing the cuts to lending or, you know, lending they've done and the tightening of the lending standards. And if they had like, um, particularly construction, commercial real estate, they talk about like where that stands and stuff. So it's interesting if you read some of these smaller banks, like uh, a good one, like FB Financial yesterday, I posted about them and there was another like community bank shares uh, bank. And these are like five to 10 billion each. And those are, those are kind of your more typical regionals. The only big regional we've had so far was PNC, uh, but there's a lot more to come, obviously. Yeah, I actually thought Synchrony Financial looked pretty good, all things considered. 
I know you'll probably disagree, but no, I actually they no, look awfully, I don't disagree. They, actually, they turned around there. They had that problem where their charge offs were rising for a few months, and it looks like that went the other way this month. So that's a good sign. And then, um, I actually funny story. I actually finally got a, a mailer right as I get home from them pitching me a new credit card, which is weird because Synchrony, as far as I knew, never had its own credit card. But they're they're basically selling me a two percent anywhere credit card from synchrony directly so it's not a merchant credit card you know what i mean i've never gotten a mailer yeah yeah well that's their big business right they they do the private label yes, store credit exactly card. so we used to use them when i worked at lowe's back they were ge capital back then in fact my old boss used to work there back in the day at ge capital and synchrony is the new name they gave ge capital after they spun out of ge and after the banking crisis but they do the amazon card they do the um the Lowe's card, they do the, I think, uh, a few other big retailers, they're, they're the card behind them. So they're the one taking most of the credit risk. And they're considered the riskiest, probably, of all the mainstream credit card companies. Because those, yeah, those kind of cards have the highest charge-off rates. And you'll see that in their earnings. Like, they typically have a much higher charge-off rate. But correspondingly, they tend to earn a bit of a bigger NIM. They charge a little higher rate for that. So. Yeah, I mean, they tend to be the sort of like, they're never the front of the wallet card that you go to first, right? They're always the ones that get, after all the other cards get overloaded, they're in the worst position. They get used only when, you know, the consumer's already pretty full up uh, on the other credit cards. And so they, they, they don't really get the high interchange fees they get, they, and they get a disproportionate amount of the losses. But like you said, they make a lot, a lot on fees and stuff. But uh, no, they look awfully good. And at 6 PE ratio, I mean, well, be careful with PEs on banks because the credit can turn I know. I'm just. No, saying that. a lot of the banks look really nice. But one thing I'll say, they did do, um, like you said, they're cutting unused lines. I think they're worried about what you're talking about. So if a customer's sitting out there with a store card they haven't used in two years, they commented, and there's a Bloomberg article I posted about it, that they're cutting some of those lines. So that's a type of asset action called line management. Anyway, it's still early, but uh, you know, it's it's going to be interesting to see kind of the all of these different companies, especially now as we get to the super regionals and regionals, where I think they have more of the CRE exposure and probably like PNC uh, starting to see some of the NIM compression. Yeah, and Goldman's going to be really interesting given all the chatter around that. And there was just a story about the new strategy they're pursuing because Goldman for a long time. In fact, they recruited someone from my old bank to do this. They started their own consumer division. And you'll recall a few months ago, they were touting the new Apple deposits and Goldman Marcus was the bank behind that. And then they did a total reversal. They pulled out of it. When they had the CCAR results, they had huge losses in consumer. So they have a whole bunch of issues in credit and consumer. They weren't as good at consumer as they thought. And it's like they backed away from it. And on top of that, they kind of lost the top spot in investment banking, I believe, to Morgan Stanley. But I think J.P. Morgan's up there, too. So they're kind of like rethinking their whole strategy now because of that. And it looks like they're going to rejigger towards uh, back to investment banking and sort of what they've traditionally been good at. But Goldman's always an interesting one because they're usually ahead of the curve from on everyone in banking. So it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm less interested in the investment banks. I'm more interested, mainly because I know sort of deal flows kind of dried up. Maybe it's picking up now. I don't know, but I'm more interested sort of in the card companies and the um, 
um, and the, you know, basically traditional banks um, to see kind of what they report. And then the other, honestly, the other area I'm going to be interested in, uh, which I know is dear to your heart, is I'm going to be very interested to see kind of how the subprime auto lenders report. Um, they'll be coming up soon, too. It's funny you mentioned that. I, that was never one that I believed in because for years we heard about subprime auto and how it was the next shoe to fall. But now I've turned very bearish on it just based on some stuff I heard. But I think they're tightening. I think they've tightened the credit standards really hard on subprime. In fact, I've heard that from quite a few people now. So it's interesting. And then you got to keep in mind the collateral is falling. So the lender with a with an auto, you, you like I just got a zero percent down auto loan, right? So what, like thirty some thousand dollar Mazda three, like kind of a high end one, right? And they gave me a two nine rate on it. It's new, and I was like, what do I need to put down? They're like, oh, you don't have to put anything down. So even with some of the lower credit scores, because I have pretty good credit score. And uh, they, even some of the lower ones, I was like, what's the lowest bucket? And he's like, oh, you can go down to 700 or something. So I was a little bit like, wow, that's interesting. But if the collateral starts to fall on those loans, like when they repo it, obviously there's a hefty cost to repoing it and auctioning it and all that stuff. If they can actually find the car. Yeah, if they actually find the car. (laughs) And that's another thing too, things, and this will be an interesting dynamic if we have this, things have gotten a little more tense, particularly in cities and like, it's a lot more dangerous to be a repo man. I used to know people back when I was in college who did it. It was dangerous then. Um, but now it's like, who the hell wants to do that? So it'll be an interesting dynamic. If you ever want to watch a, a it's a kind of a weird film. I don't know if you even have ever heard of it, but there's actually a, a film that came out in the early eighties called repo man with Emilio Estevez. Um, I've seen and, it. Yeah, I've it, seen it. Seen it. You know, repo men have a code. Weimar. <laughs> I learned that from that movie. <laughs> yeah. And please enlighten us, Bill. What's this code? Oh, I can't even remember now. I got to go back and look and watch that one more time. But yeah, it's a it's a weird movie. A very well. Isn't Charlie Sheen in it too? Estevez and Sheen. I don't know. If, no, I thought it was just Emilio Estevez, no, but yeah, you might be right. But I think uh, like it's not too much of a, and this is a, I guess anecdotal because I didn't do too a deep dive here, so um, take it as it will. But uh, I, I don't think it's going to be that much of a compression within these auto lenders. In the research that I have done, um, the mitigation that they were able to do in the first three months to six months of that the the vehicle, most of the time when reselling. So this is a big problem: is we might see a offset and a huge increase in actual uh, secondhand vehicles come in due to these repos because of the three months to six month uh, uh, quotes that they have within the insurance provisions and this is where they're usually able to offset their their increased autos or i should say increased vehicles that they reobtain throughout the credit consolidation that they've just went through um but usually like at a 25 to 15 cents off the dollar type thing yeah look i mean subprime auto lending is sort of a business unto itself that um they understand they understand they understand their lending against a depreciating asset most of the times other than recent pandemic. They also understand who they're lending to. Um, so it is a business that I think historically actually has done pretty well because it has, you know, it sort of skirts the usury laws by just, you know, being just below state, you know, limits in terms of interest rates. But I mean, the APRs are 18 to 24 percent. There's usually a dealer holdback as well uh, to sort of, you know, keep the dealer honest. Um, so 
if anything, I think some of these guys are going to benefit here because the banks are sort of leaving the field. And also, you know, there's been sort of a, you know, the dealers wouldn't necessarily, given the limited supply of used cars, like they wouldn't, they, they wouldn't go down to subprime, right? When they can make more money, you know, selling their used car or, or using it as part of a trade-in to a prime borrower. So I'm actually kind of bullish. I know contrary to Weimar, I'm actually quite bullish on some of these um, subprime auto lenders who, you know, have a, have a long track record and sort of seem to know what they're doing. Um, because I think this, the, the field, you know, the, the, the demand will be coming back to them after sort of disappearing for a couple of years. But now, shouldn't their prices yeah, be losses, more depressed? Losses will be high, but they, they know that and they've built their business model around it. But if you're going to buy, wouldn't you want their prices to be depressed first? I'm not saying that like a subprime auto lender is going to go away, but they could have several years of reduced or non-existent earnings. Yeah, no, it's, it's contrary, though. Like, if you read, like, I, I, one of the ones I follow is credit acceptance, right? One, one of their problems has been volumes have been down for them for the last couple of years, and that part of it is because there's too much competition and not enough volume, right? The, the dealers, like I said, aren't going um, to give the finance receivable to them because they're not going to, they're not going to um, entertain sort of a subprime borrower or weren't willing to for the last couple of years because they could make more money elsewhere. With the banks leaving, that's less competition. So, yeah, these guys will price accordingly, right? They'll, they'll first off, the volumes will be there, and then they'll price knowing that you know capital has kind of left um that market because the banks are no longer you know want to do it simply because for them it doesn't make sense anymore it's too much it's too risky they got balance sheet issues they got risk weighted asset issues uh they, they don't want to be anywhere near you know kind of used car auto loans yeah and to bill's point i th- there were last quarter this was before this quarter there were already auto lenders in the banking space calling out that they'd cut back significantly on auto lending so that had already started to happen even before the bank crisis. I think a lot of it was just driven by rate and use of capital and stuff like that and liquidity. So yeah, they have definitely pulled back and you know, it's, it's gotten a lot tighter. I'd say in the auto space, especially if you're a subprime borrower to get anything like you're, you're often paying over 20% if you're getting a loan. At the end of the day, if we do see some compressions within uh, these auto loans, uh, a bank is the last institution that wants to hold an actual, let's say, vehicle inside their balance sheet. And this is where I think Bill's point is accurate as well when he says that, um, one, when we look at the lending practices associated to auto loans, they're significantly more tight and uh, aggressive than that of, let's say, a housing loan and or uh, or mortgage, I should say, and or other forms of uh, lending practices outside of credit cards. Um, And this is important. And because essentially, if we're going to see, let's say, individuals go through defaults, they're more likely to continue paying their auto loan because they need to go to work and, and more likely to stop paying their mortgages because the lending practices and credit rehabilitation continuously different. Well, yeah, I mean, it, in order of priority, what what you're going to skip first is your student loan. That because <laughs> there's all kinds of reasons why. Well, you can defer that if you lose your job too. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like you know, that's the first one to go, then the credit cards, and then uh, you know, the the auto loan is one of the last ones you want to give up because if if that car gets repossessed, how do you get to work? Right, that's no no car, no job. 
And that's exactly it. Most of these like auto insurance, or I should say auto lenders have strict three to six month policies that if they do see compressions that they, they repossess the car. And most of the time after the seventh to eighth month, they've already liquidated that car. And like I've just stated, they'll get, they don't mind having the compression of 20 to 15 cents off the dollar for that vehicle because they're able to then just reinitiate and, and repurpose, right? Oh yeah, exactly. Like if you're a, you know, if, if you're a, a day, you know, you're a contract guy working sort of like day labor, working on a construction site, you know, in South Florida, you lose your pickup truck. You're basically out of work. Hey, so pivoting a little bit, have you been following what's going on in the auto industry at all? About two weeks ago, Ford started doing some layoffs and they're actually like factory workers. I think Ford's. A yeah. Mess. And then and then they cut the EV prices for the truck, which is curious to me because I have a friend who bought a Maverick, which is a hybrid. And they're still he bought this back in September. He signed for it. They were supposed to deliver it this May at the latest. And they're pushing back basically to August, maybe later September. So it's probably going to be a year till he gets his Ford Maverick. Sorry, my cat's in the background whining. Um, and uh you know that so that's going on they're laying off workers they're cutting prices and then gm comes out and they're like we can't make cars fast enough so it's like it's very interesting i think ford has um jumped the shark and gone kind of full ev uh, without really having sort of the cost structure to do it and i i think uh i think they're in big kind of big trouble actually and that's why i think you know um Look, I'm not a big Tesla guy. I don't really, I don't, I don't want to start getting into a whole Tesla debate. But I, I think one of the reasons why Tesla is aggressively cutting prices is because they know someone like Ford's in, in a bit of trouble. And um, they're, you know, it's kind of like one of these sort of competitive gamesmanship things. Yeah. And uh, one thing I know about Ford is they were a heavy participant in both asset-backed securities when I was at a bank that did those. And uh also, retail notes, which were a product where they issue basically unsecured debt directly to consumers. And we actually set up our I actually set up the retail note program in part at, at the company or the bank I worked at. And we couldn't even get traction. We were in it for like two or three years. We got very little uptake and it was a lot of work to keep the program going. But basically all the volume would go to Ford. So I, I'm curious how that program is faring in these times of high rates and high offered yields to consumers. Yeah. I think one of the things that's going to be interesting, like leaving subprime sort of aside is, and again, I, you know, you and I probably again may agree to disagree, but I, I, that my main takeaway from that New York fed um, credit survey that just came out yesterday, I think it was, um, was, the prime and, uh, you know, sub super prime type borrowers, th that demand is sort of falling off the cliff for more credit. They're just not applying for anything. And I think some of it is, you know, their balance sheet is probably in good shape. But the other thing is there's kind of rate, like they're not happy with rates. So they're just going to, you know, go to the sidelines. And that's why you're starting to see some, some sort of inflection points in some consumer debt uh, levels, right, where they're, you know, they're just disappearing. And the reason I say that is it's going to be interesting to see how the auto manufacturers react to that, right? Like I suspect you're going to start to see, you know, sharper, sharper um, discounts and sharper pricing on auto loans for prime borrowers who are buying new cars, right? Oh, and to that point, yeah. 
Uh, just, just anecdotally, right? We saw exactly the same propensity within uh, personal lines of credit, right? Essentially, these prime uh, these prime borrowers are getting offered. They're they're getting offered. Well, Weimar just said Weimar's getting all his all these credit card things in the mail. Well, well, well. Hold on, hold on. He's, he sounds like a first one I've prime. gotten in a while. And I'll say this: I've, they were markedly reduced. The thing I was getting a lot of were offers for bank accounts, like big six, five hundred dollars, six hundred dollars. Open a BMO account, open a savings account, you get seven hundred dollars because they wanted my deposits more than my credit card business. But I'll say one thing about the credit card business: Super Prime isn't always as attractive, particularly at a time of high rates, because they don't always revolve balances. You make your money on revolvers, and if you have somebody who pays off every month. But aren't they bigger spenders? So you get more interchange though is capped out. It's like, you're going to earn with the rewards. I've seen the numbers. It's like often less than 1% because you often give over half. You're right. You're right. Cause they have to plow. It yeah. Down. Yeah. You're yeah. Right. So like right now you actually probably want to be target targeting those middle FICOs like 720 to 750 high enough credit. They're going to not default, but they're also going to have a revolving balance with you so you can earn something on them. Cause it's a high name problem. And usually a, a week to four days late on their payments where you're incurring as much interest as you can, right? Those are your prime lending. I mean, penalties have gone down a lot for a lot of these cards. You'd be surprised. Um, but yeah, I mean, that can be a component. But you can actually see that in their earnings if you're curious. And, and I, I think that that's where it's like in, important to note, right? Like there is a lowering um, like will for these for, for basic individuals to actually acquire new credit. And um, whether that's a continuing, uh, uh, let's say, habit that's going to manifest for a longer term, that's the bigger question, right? Because that has underlying problems. Wouldn't you agree, Bill? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how I think it's too early still, but I, I don't know how this is going to manifest itself, right? Like. You know, savings rates are picking up, but they're not really, you know, ramping up uh, big yet, right? Uh, we're still kind of below, the saving rate still seems to be in aggregate below sort of pre-pandemic. So I don't know where the money's going. <laughs> like, uh, but you are hearing that, you know, anecdotally that maybe there's some more pay down happening, right? Like maybe it's, who knows, maybe it's it's going in, it's going to go into student loans. People are going to start paying their principal, even if, even if, let's say the, the you know, def, is it deferment? Is that the official term that, you know, once that, Stop. Um, well, yeah. Um, if you get laid off, though, you get to go. You get to do it again. You get like another period that you can apply for. I think it's every time you get laid off, you can apply again if it's a federal student loan. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. But but some of them are even you know if, if some of them are still probably going to take advantage and start paying down right the principal. Oh, so, for sure. For sure. Even if yeah. So so I don't know where the money's going to go. It'll be interesting to see once student loans sort of restart what what happens right. Um, I think the government's also getting ready to kind of, you know, foam the runway, <laughs> so to speak, for these borrowers. So I, I doubt there's there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, strict application of, uh, you know, payment. One other thing I'll I mean, highlight, if you have a high balance right now and you're seeing, because what credit cards usually do is they float off prime and the people who pay interest have probably begun to notice they're paying quite a bit more in interest. Maybe they were at 12 before or 15 spread to prime. And now it's gone up, you know, 550 or whatever it's going to be. Um, so it'll be, you know, they're noticing that impact every month. Hey, why question for you? Why are deposits going back up? I thought they were shrinking. 
Uh, it depends on the week, but a lot of it's being driven actually right now by the foreign chartered banks. If you look at the data for like the last month or two, they're responsible for most of the delta in deposits. And I think the main reason is they're paying up and a lot of it's happening in the brokered market. Also, the Canadian banks are paying really high rates right now. The big like the ones that have access in America I always point out CIBC's at 536 and uh, BMO on their one-year CD. These are both one-year CDs I'm quoting. BMO's at 525. And then the Bank of China is always out there issuing. They're out of Hong Kong. They're always issuing heavy in the BCD market right now. So I don't know how much of it's that, but it seems like a good chunk of it when I look at the H8 data weekly is going to those foreign chartered banks. Yeah, I should take a closer look. I don't really go into the the divisions between large, small, and foreign, but that, that makes sense. I built a spreadsheet that, that does it all automatically. Maybe I can send it to you, Bill. Okay, cool. Yeah. Do you have, like, time series going, going back? Uh, I actually do, but that's from Bloomberg. But, yeah, I could get that, too. Um, actually, a uh, quick thing for everybody on the call. The Fred, uh, the Fred thing has an API for Excel. It's actually really easy to install, and you can literally pull all this data like live right into spreadsheets as it comes out. It's really cool, actually. But that's not my have. Okay. I, I got to go play around with that. That's interesting. Use a lot of that data. Although I, I typically go to like the U.S. Treasury's daily website or, or uh, you know, other sites. Yeah, you, you could build polls for this real quick. I think it takes like 15 minutes after the Treasury comes out. It'll be updated and you're good to go. Um, but yeah. I just want like chat GPT to start building the Python code. Bill, yeah. do, you, do you currently write in Python? Uh, it's been 10 years, man. No, not anymore. But at least you, you you know how to code. That that's the main priority, right? I, my first job was coding, actually, out of school. Yeah, but it was COBOL, and now I'm dating myself. Do you know C plus plus? Fantastic. What's that? Nostra, sorry, I interrupted you. I think Nostra asked if you knew C plus plus, Bill. Uh no, that one I don't know. Sorry. What about Ruby on Rails? You know that one? <laughs> Okay, that that's listen. I, we're, we're you. That's all I got, man. That's it. So, Bill, did you work? At a, this river does not run. Deep. Did you work at a bank then? If you knew COBOL, did you do the main work on a mainframe computer? I hate to say it. I used to work for one of the big audit firms, Arthur. Oh, okay, okay. So out of Chicago, but, but on the on, on the good side, the consulting side, not the crook. Got side. it. Got it. Got it. Yeah, yeah. They were out of Chicago, so they were one of the ones we lost. Oh yeah, I used to go to I used to go to the St. Charles uh, training facility. I guess now that doesn't exist. <laughs> I grew up right there, man, by uh, Elgin South Elgin. It's right next to St. Charles. Did, did, do they still have that hospital that you know, used to have the newborns in the window in St. Charles? No, we used to go there. We no, used... I don't think so. Not even. Bill is an auditor. It all makes sense now. He's a consultant. I, I, I feel like I'm still. I, I... I was a consultant. Like we... <laughs> Not, not an auditor, man. I do not have a, uh, an, a an accounting degree. I was going to say, I, I feel like CIBC still uses some of your programs that you've uh, developed earlier back in the day. That's how redundant CIBC is. I saw, but not to say that you weren't a player. Okay, just, I'm an asshole there. Sorry. I saw a headline today about CIBC highlighting a consumer uptick after a slowdown in May in, ju in June. So... 
don't know if you saw that, David. Sorry, can you repeat that one more? I was taking a drink of water. Yeah, there was a story. I actually didn't uh, read it in detail because it was kind of a weird story. I think it was from like S&P. But apparently CIBC, I saw the headline on my email, they highlighted an uptick in consumer spending after a May slowdown they had seen. So just something, yeah, I'm sure you could find it if you Googled it. Yeah, I'll have to. I haven't seen the article in particular, so I won't say anything uh, outside of the anecdotes. So we have a Fed meeting coming up, July the 26th. Do you guys anticipate the Fed revising the dot plot higher, meaning higher forward guidance? Like, yes, we hiked 25, but in addition to the additional 25 that we've signaled, we're going to go out even further and signal possibly into 2024 that we're going to remain in the tightening cycle. Um, the market doesn't seem to think so. The market seems to think they're one and done in July and then pause and hold for the rest of the year. I don't yeah, know. The, the market doesn't always get it right. but Yeah, no, I think that's a big risk to the market. Like people are overly optimistic around the degree to which the Fed is is going to yeah, but that's remain restricted. It, but that's the point. You, you're at you're at the wait till it breaks phase now because look, go back to January and February, and what were people saying? They were saying, "Look at yields. How can you buy stocks here?" That's what everyone was saying. They were like, "Look at the risk free yield. How how can you possibly buy stocks here?" And yet, a lot of people bought stocks. Okay, and 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 so that's the thing is people use these fixed like comparative metrics. I was even listening to a space earlier today. People were talking about the dollar and they were like, man, do you think the dollar keeps tumbling from here? Yeah. And some, okay. We had no, okay. That's besides the point. The point is, is that like <laughs> the short terms, short term movements in stocks have very little to do with, with short term movements in, in the dollar. There is a very loose correlation. You can go back through all of the data for the last 80 years. And over like a one month period, there's almost no discernible correlation. In fact, stocks, if you really wanted to put it directly, stocks go up more often while the dollar is going down than they go down with the dollar. So, like, these types of fluid metrics, like the the, the moving price of the dollar, yields which move, pointing at them and saying, like, oh, like a market rally can't stop or market rally can't continue in the face of them. That's been consistently proven wrong. And it's actually especially proven wrong if you look at the three months before and the three months after a market bottom. Okay, the three months before and three months after. And obviously, you can't know a market bottom while you're in it. You know, we can only look at these things in hindsight. So this is in the last six cycles. If you look at the three months before and the three months after, all the things that happened in the first three three months of this year, not all of them, but most of them, the shitty stocks running, the it's only seven stocks narrative, all these things, that's exactly what, what gets said every time because that's what a turning equity market looks like. The garbage that has 30, 40, 50% short interest has to get covered, right? And all of the net positioning has to get grabbed. And where is most of that net positioning getting grabbed? In the biggest names that are the biggest weight components of the biggest indexes and that's like it's it's all been a, a flow a, like a, a basic mechanics and flow thing this year and i think now if you're a bear you have to be waiting for something to break what else can you do now i mean you need a catalyst no one can convince me that equities will go back to the last october's lows without a catalyst oh, why do you need a catalyst 
I mean, what, what's going to what's going to drive a sell off in equities like that without a catalyst? Well, well let me ask you this question: What drove yeah. the sell off in the dot com uh, the dot com burst? Right? What was the catalyst for that? So, and I will say this really accurately: passive flows have changed markets completely from the dot com and even 08. Um, and so, by definition, Term trading has too. And yeah, so consolidative nature of markets have just been compounding for 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 the last two, two decades, right? What about commission free yeah, the trading? The narrative that like markets don't change, like pe- people hate that. Legacy guys hate that because they say like, "Oh, don't say markets don't change because you'll get humbled." Like, yeah, that part is true. But markets do change structurally. That is, I mean, they do. Isn't the structural right? change that, that, and I keep going back to this because people noticed it sort of soon after it happened, they quit talking about it. I remember it well, it was like 2018, everyone started, I remember because I heard Charles Schwab talk about doing it. I was at the downtown listening to him talk and he was like, here's why we got rid of commissions. And everyone was like, ooh, ah, you know, and everyone did it all at once. It was like Schwab and it was driven by, I think, Robin Hood. And that totally changed who was investing and how many people were investing. It took a few years, but I think that is a, is it was a big change. Obviously, COVID amplified it, but it was already going on before then. No, yeah, right. and, and the, the three, but the but the three years, so twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one are the two biggest years for new retail accounts opened ever, and it's like blows it out of the water. Like it, you're talking about tens of millions of new retail accounts that had no history of the other, you know, other. But yeah, but let's kind of uh, This is an important point after Stock Talk just mentioned that in 2022, after we saw the historical precedence in opening of accounts, we saw an ex- historical closing of accounts. And four out of five of these opening accounts were then just closed and saw negative uh, losses and were exposed. Hopefully, they might have reparticipated, but we did see a large fraction of retail participants trying to, I guess, that- that, that happens on market pullbacks. Yeah, I mean, people get wiped out, of course. Yeah, but I'm, I'm talking about the accessibility, like the ability to access participation in the market has fundamentally changed. It is impossible to argue otherwise. But I, mean, but I will say... You know, 30 the, years ago, you couldn't download an app on your phone and and with, and with deposit $200 yeah. and instantly have access to options contracts. So stop. That's insane. There was some similar change, though, because I remember this. I started. Tra- I was very young, and I think I traded my first stock at like age 9 or 10, and it was in the early 2000s, late 90s. And the reason was discount brokers appeared. And I was able to go start, you know, trading with a discount broker that later got bought by TD and then Ameritrade or Meritrade and then TD. But um, that was a thing that happened back then, too. And like I had neighbors who like quit work to become like day traders. They were older, you know, they were, and they're like they like moved out of the neighborhood. They made so much money. But like that was a thing that happened back then, too. And everyone, I remember it, like, even as a kid, there'd be, like, all these commercials on TV for, like, different mutual funds and stuff. And everyone we knew was, like, investing in them. And it it got to be a big thing. And then, of course, everyone lost their shirts and kind of, like, walked away. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you. Look, like, there are bouts of retail participation that get flushed out. That that's always been true. And the data agrees with that, that position as well. You can go back and look at, like, you know, most bull markets have drawn in a bunch of new participants and the 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 the, the following sell off or bear market or next recession wipes out most of them that's always been true i don't disagree with that but the ability to access the markets has changed it's different even than it was back then you know anyone can do this a kid who's 18 can just pull his phone out and download an app and 
within a day, he has $100 on the app and he's trading options contracts. I mean, that is an insane level of access. That is not, does not have a historical anecdote, right? And, and that's part of my problem with making like, you know, a lot of times, like even the spaces I do during the day, people will like bring up these points about like, oh, well, stock talk had happened before, right? Like, well, don't you remember the industrial revolution or don't you remember the invention of the internet? And it's like, there's always a point in technology where you actually are fundamentally changing the thing rather than just accentuating it. And this is one of those instances, just like AI is, right? But for trading, this is one of those instances where democratization of access and explosion in the availability of different time-dated products, okay? Because if you go way back, you know, forget daily contracts. I mean, even weekly contracts are relatively new. And now there's there's starting to certain uh, market makers are starting to talk about hourly contracts, contracts that will be settled on the hour because they know that it will explode volume. Yeah, this is, is, yeah, pure lunacy, right? Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. So now you're concentrating more and more money into short term, high velocity moves. That, I mean, Microsoft. Isn't that what caused the 87 crash, though? It was the rise of options on futures. Yeah, it might cause a crash. I'm not saying it won't. Look, I don't, I don't believe, like, I want to be clear. I know I'm, I've been generally bullish this year. If you guys heard me on spaces last year, I was very bearish. Like, I'm not a perma bull. I'm just saying, like, you know, these things are built to go up. There's a massive global Ponzi scheme of central banks that is endlessly supporting equity markets. There's an explosion in access and democratization of access. But can you there's argue they're supporting markets right trading. now? Can you? Yeah, I don't think it's a, the central banking initiative and uh, monetary No, I'm just saying our entire global monetary system props up equity markets. Yeah, I guess tacitly we know they'll save them so the downside's yeah. limited. Yeah, I get exactly. what you're saying. The assurance that equity markets will be saved is a propping up of equity markets. It removes a massive element of like, it'll all go to zero risk. And, and this, this is a question that I'm asking specifically, and Bill, because you're very prevailing in monetary uh, policies, this might be more directed towards you, but specifically in the relations to QE and QT, but QE specifically and how it influences market, we know that the majority of the balance sheet is held in fixed income. So essentially, is this like, in, 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 and this is just me clawing and clawing at the potentiality of its connection to markets in the sense of equities by insurance and the abilities to hypothecate this fixed income and then the abilities for institutional players and other forms of uh, uh, achieving liquidity by the Fed to say then, okay, this liquidity is going to end up eventually within equity markets. But, but look, liquidity matters a lot too on the, on, the, on, the, uh, on the activity of retail traders, right? Like people forget how much volume retail traders really make up, right? They're making up 30 to 40% of the volume. And so what people have, kind of skipped over is that when when this explosion in short-term trading happened what it did is it provided the liquidity for fast money funds and institutions to make the moves that would have taken them a quarter to make within a week's time because of the excess liquidity in short-term products and so now you have fun fast money fund managers who are directly saying in interviews on cnbc yeah, we actually never traded zero DT contracts, but this year, like, we've been trading them. Like, fast money fund managers with hundreds of millions at their disposal are saying that. That tells you something. Go for it, Bill. Sorry. No, no, this is a, a very interesting discussion. I was listening to um, a podcast with uh, David Einhorn, right, who's kind of sort of famous for green light capital value investing. 
and you know he was sort of like sounding like he's giving up on value investing um and and part of the reason for that is he thinks that you know some of the the trends that you're talking about stock talk and others right like one i know david mentions a lot the rise of sort of passive investing which is these you know flow driven pools of money that that are really sort of price insensitive buyers and sellers in the market and then you know the new phenomenon that you know these uh, you know kind of very active daily trading you know of options and other types of you know securities that you know again are are basically not necessarily fundamentally driven but just flow and momentum driven um and this actually gets me very excited because I am neither of those two, right? I'm I'm a long-term buy and hold. Like I, I curl up with a nice 10K and, and read the footnotes and try to value stuff. But the point that Greenlight made or Einhorn made was he said, like, the problem now is nobody cares. Like, you know, unless you're talking about one of the very big stocks that have a lot of flows and a lot of option volume, if you're buying like a small cap stock and you think, oh my God, this is cheap, it's a 5 PE, he said, you know, in the in the old days, he would buy it at 5 PE and he'd wait till it was discovered and, you know, go to 10 PE or 11 PE and then he'd sell it. And he says, now it just won't move. It'll stay at 5 PE for a long time. Um, and that's kind of why he's giving up because I guess he's got performance that he has to deliver. But for me, like, that's exciting because I, I want markets to be sort of price insensitive buyers and sellers or Momo chasers, right? Because... To me, that is the that is for in the in the way I invest. That's what I want. I want people who aren't interested in the fundamentals, who are strictly interested in flows or or momentum. And again, there's multiple ways to make money in the market. I don't begrudge anybody, you know, investing in whatever style makes sense for them, as long as they feel like they can make money doing it. But for me, it means like the competitive field that I have to compete with is shrinking very rapidly, and there's fewer and fewer people who really care about sort of the value of a stock as opposed to sort of what's happening to price. But anyway, that's just my little spiel. No, you're right. There's more, as a result of this, there's more fundamental opportunities out there. Absolutely. I, I, I wouldn't doubt that for a second. I think you're, you're spot on with that. But, you know, it, it's pe- people have to kind of rationalize like what a stock is going to do because at the end of the day, like you know, the vast majority of people who own a stock know very little about it. You know, and, and that even to an extent, it's not just retail that I'm saying that about. I'm, I'm, yeah, there's, there's, even... studies, there's studies that say that, you know, they ask investors, how many of you read sort of the financials of the stocks you own? I think it's like less than 2%. Even better than that, Bill, there was a survey <laughs> they did of like 12,000 uh, individual stock investors across the United States. And 70% of them couldn't answer the CEO of every company in their portfolio. So it's like. That's stunning. Yeah, that, that is stunny. I mean, that's a survey of only whatever, to whatever, how many ten thousand plus investors, whatever they did. I don't know. It wasn't like hundreds of thousands of people, but but number go up, huh? The number go up. Whatever, seven thousand, ten thousand. I don't remember the exact thing. The point is, it was thousands of people. It wasn't hundreds of thousands. Um, but the, like, look, the, the 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 reality is, is that people are just underwhelmingly ignorant about the companies that they invest in even on an institutional level to a degree not like i mean if you have billions and billions of dollars in stock you know you have a due diligence team that's done the work but i mean there are smaller institutions that are just in stocks because of the narrative i mean even if you read the sell side work that most of these tech guys do which i read every week it's garbage I mean, most of it is nonsense right yeah. it's just narrative driven stuff i, I like, remember oh, <laughs> 
You know, Star it's Trek, all TAM driven. I like to call it TAM driven stuff. Like me and well, it's, when, it is all narrative, right? Like I, I remember being in a space with you. I think it was like a couple of weeks ago, uh, after July Fourth, and I, I think it was when kind of the sphere sort of first popped up in Las Vegas and started, you know, showing like the basketball or the eye sort of you know ball, right? This new venue that's been created. And I think in that space, as you and I were discussing that stock, you know, you sort of more on the you know price flow and me on like, uh, this is really risky because it's losing a piss pot of money and it's got like a billion and a half of debt. But but there were people on that space who were like, wow, that that is so cool. And we're buying it sight unseen that day. Exactly. Building this stock's <laughs> up another 10 percent. Because, hey. Look at that you giant know? <laughs> basketball! Look at that giant basketball on the on the horizon of uh, Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying, right? It's like it's 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 understanding the psychology. Like, the, look, the first stock, the first trade, I guess I ever made was back in 2012 when I was 18 and I bought Adobe, right? And I sold it. I sold it in 2016, and I was like, oh, it was a hell of a trade. You know, I'd like I almost tripled my money, and I was like, all right, sweet, like I'm out. And then because I felt the stock was getting rich. I was like, oh, it's getting rich. And then the stock proceeded to rip into 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. And I was kind of like, oh, wow, like, you know, fuck me. And then, you know, 2015, 2016, I bought Tesla, which was really like the career, I guess, I don't know what I call it, career defining, but portfolio defining certainly move for me in 2015, 2016. And that was not a fundamental thesis at all. I bought that stock because I felt like electric vehicle adoption was going to increase. And I felt like they were the only player at the time. It was that simple. It wasn't because I looked at Tesla's balance sheet and thought it was, you know, a beautiful balance sheet, you know? It, and I think that's the difference is like, sometimes people adopt to a strategy that works for them and they kind of leave, put aside the more traditional way that they were taught. And that's kind of how my trading adopted. Like I've gotten shorter and shorter term in my thinking because I've realized stocks are so narrative driven and that's so quickly narratives can change. Even if the fundamental story doesn't change. Um, you know, and so I still have stocks I invest in. Like, you know, I have stocks that, you know, like I've talked about these lithium stocks for years now. You know, I'm invested in those stocks. You know, I plan to hold those stocks for 10 years. You know, that's diff that's entirely different lens than I view the way I look at my trading portfolio. Right. Which is entirely like, hey, where can I squeeze out alpha that I know um, is a place that, you know, I can get it consistently. And that's really all that matters for the trading account. You just got a message on your Discord there, Stock. <laughs> you knew that was a Discord notification? Yeah. I thought you heard Leo squeaking this toy beside me, but it actually... Oh, is that what that squeaking is? I thought that was your chair. I mean, he is squeaking a toy. He's, like, right beside me. Yeah. Weimar, go ahead. Tell yeah. us uh, why they're wrong. Oh, no, I wasn't going to argue they're wrong, uh, but uh, I was going to say, first, I put the CIBC thing I saw on the Nest. Not a very good source, but it's an interesting headline, so I'll have to read it, research it more. But the uh, thing I wanted to say was, to David's point... Uh, the rotation between bonds and stocks isn't as easy as people think. A lot of times the bond investors have to be there for a variety of reasons. It could be fund prospectuses. They have to meet certain um, yield uh, requirements to meet cash flows if they're a pension fund. Uh, they may just be precluded. A lot of you know, like banks obviously couldn't buy stocks, but we do buy treasuries and we buy MBS. So there's all these different uh, things there. In addition to central banks, which often you know don't buy stocks, uh, with the exception of the Swiss uh, central bank. Um, so that that was what I wanted to say there. But then I was going to go on and say, you know what, our market reminds me of a lot right now. Um, and I wasn't terribly bearish until recently, until the, the bank thing started. But um, it reminds me of the Chinese stock market 
after 2015, 2014, 2015, you'd have these tremendous rips and they would push liquidity back in and it would go back up and then it would have these tremendous crashes. But it was like the central government was almost driving the stock market as a means of meeting economic goals. It's kind of interesting to study. I remember we used to see the news stories back then, um, but it would go in and out and people like, they'd be like, oh, China's done now. You know, the stock market just tanked, but then it would come ripping back. It would be like a year later and it would be back on top. And that's kind of what, like what's happening right now reminds me of a little bit. Bill, go ahead. No, 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 I go ahead. And I think to that point, like, right, it's more leaning on stock and bill your conversation, like security analysis is a complicated endeavor, one, and the majority of the market and Bill, you mentioned I've been ringing the bell maybe too much on passive flows, but these passive flows, right, that's 43% of all market participation, 73% of all market flows that we saw in market like inflows was in the last six months was actually the proponents to why we saw market uptake in the sense of its consolidative nature in the actual propensity of the markets to go up within this six-month period. But long story short, these buyers don't know how to read an income statement or a balance sheet. And so by definition, they are they, they have no ideas of any fundamentals. They are not fundamental buyers just by definition of their delegations of passive investments to passive structures and passive vessels, right? They delegate their responsibilities immediately. Right, which which is which is fine, right? Like, I mean, you know, especially if all you're doing is sort of just, you know, index your, your, the, the ETF or whatever you're investing in is sort of very low expense and, and mirroring sort of an indice. I think that's fine for most people, right? Because you're, you know, you're just getting exposure to us equities over the long term is a winning proposition. Um, I just don't know where the tipping point is, right? Like I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not completely bought into, you know, that passive flows are, you know, a menace to markets, but, but it is, there's no doubt that they are price insensitive buyers and sellers at certain times when flows are either coming in or coming at most times, at most yeah. times. But I, I yeah. so, so to me, that's a, that's an advantage for me because again, I, I'm, you know, I, to me, I'm looking at the value, not the price. And, you know, if, if I have the cash and, and, you know, some particular stock is being beaten up. The only difference I've noticed, you know, in my time, in my time investing, which, you know, I've been investing probably since, I guess, early aughts is there is definitely, if you're not in certain stocks that have a lot of, you know, action, quote unquote, like nothing happens for a long time, no matter how good the story is, right. They just, they just sit there. I mean, it is what it is. And if you're willing, you know, to just say, well, as long as the business is operating the way I, I like, and the management is making the right decisions in terms of, you know, allocating the cash flows that are coming in and they're not doing stupid stuff. You know, I'll just wait. And eventually, you know, typically what happens is either an event happens or just, you know, you just can't predict these things. All of a sudden, the stock just starts. Yeah. Or you, or you wait for the catalyst and that's when you trade it, which is what I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that fear is cool. And people bought it and it went up like 10, 15 percent. Right. Like. Who am I to argue that YOLO doesn't work? Sometimes? No, no, no. I'm not saying YOLO works. I'm saying, but like, look, but but all, not all short-term trading is YOLO, Bill. That's kind of my point is like, there's this perception that like, day, oh, everyone loses money day trading. It's because people like have this pigeonholed perception of what short-term trading is. They think it's like, it has to be based on some random 50-50 system. And it, it absolutely does not. 
You know, I, I spent. Yeah, that's fair. Sorry, I I didn't mean to criticize. No, 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 no. I, I'm, I don't I'm know anything you, no, about no, this. No, look, hey, Bill, you and me have conversations like this all the time. I, I don't take it personally at all. I'm just, I really am advocating for the idea that look, there. I mean, you know, there are people that are are successful traders, of course, but it's it's this idea that like all short term trading looks the same. Like all short term trading is zero DT contracts, slapping it, YOLO. Maybe it'll go up, right? Like. For example, like, I mean, you know, the type of the people that know how I trade, I trade in a very focused way where every week I look at hundreds of news stories. I go through SEC filings. I go through pretty much every sell side research report and I decide a handful of stocks. And I mean, Patrick's there, there, there all the time. Sometimes I don't even pick a stock. Sometimes I'm like, there's nothing, you know, like there's nothing that I like here that I think will move a stock. And I pick I go through hundreds of, of tickers and pick a handful of stocks that I think have a reason to move, whether it's intraday, intraweek, intramonth, and I make those picks selected on that. So it's not some it's not even really an objectively data driven process the way that technical trading is, right? You know, even technical trading, you can make the argument that a lot of technical trading strategies have a 50-50 outcome in either direction. And some of a lot of them do. Some are slightly better than that, some are slightly worse. But catalyst driven trading on an execution basis has the ability to have a much higher hit rate than that. And that's the difference is like, it is, it's, it's entirely subjective. It's based on me going through reports and saying, yeah, that's going to move the stock or, or no, that's like a meaningless uh, noisy report I can throw in the garbage. It's not going to, no one's going to take this opinion seriously. Citigroup raised their price target by $2. um, Yeah. I have a question. Uh, So let's just say you woke up, it was like 2020 and you read this article, you know, Hertz uh, rental company is filing for bankruptcy. Do you think, Oh, this is very bullish. I should buy some stock. No, but see, no, that's the point. I don't catch every opportunity and I don't pretend that I do. Like that, that, that's the thing. I, that's fine. Okay. I missed the Hertz trade. Like I missed, for example, this year. I missed that's not the point I was trying to make. Trade. That's not the I point. Yeah. Saying, like, even, even this year, like somebody was criticizing me for like missing the Coinbase trade, right? Like, okay, so what? I missed the but, Coinbase trade this dude, year. Hertz was you know, retarded. Like, you have to acknowledge that was the opposite of what you I said. I agree. Look, that's, Carvana was retarded that? this that's year. Just, like, that just shows you things are stupid. I agree. No, no, no. Oh, look, I agree. There are stocks that run for stupid reasons that I don't spot and that I don't catch. I comp- I'm not saying that I catch all these. I didn't catch Carvana this year. It's up 500% year to day, right? Like, I'm not saying that I catch all these. I'm saying the one, the stocks that I do trade genuinely have really good qual- quality catalysts and they generally move. Like, well, I'm not, you know, we're not I'm not criticizing even... you didn't catch it. You'd be stupid if you had no, caught no. it. That's not my point either. I was yeah. just saying, like, to Nostra, like, Nostra brought that up. I was just saying, like, that's the point is, yeah, that's fine. I'll miss some Hertz's and some Carvana's because they don't fit quality catalyst material. But the, the trades that I do catch are meaningful. I mean, you know, people act like sell-side research inflections don't move stocks. Yesterday was the biggest ever day for solar stocks, and it was driven all by a Morgan Stanley report in the morning. So right? you know when the last so time that was? There was I, I used to work at Southside Research for years. And sorry, I said biggest ever. I meant biggest year. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, not biggest. Well, I was just gonna <laughs> say the the last time that Southside Research really mattered was literally in the late nineties, early two thousands, and that's when they no, cracked down on the whole sector. There's a book about it by Charlie Gasparino called Blood on the Streets, and um, yeah, they they went after it because a lot of these guys were pushing these stocks, but the retail investors would hear things got a buy rating and they would just run into them. Um, 
no, no, yeah, and it doesn't work like that anymore, where it's just blind. But there's still but that was also before Reg FD, right? Yeah, Elliot yeah. Spitzer reformed the whole thing and put up the quote Chinese wall and a bunch of other stuff. Right, right, the Chinese wall. Yeah, yeah. And and look, I'm not implying that like anytime somebody sees a buy upgrade, they should buy the stock. In fact, that's the opposite of what I'm saying. I'm saying, you know, it's and by the way, it's not just sell side research, but on the point of sell side research, like I can point to you literally a hundred plus examples in the last year alone where a, an entire sector or a stock had a meaningful move and the, the inflection point was an inf- a pivot in sell side research. It's not because what they're saying is true or that their opinion is groundbreaking or that the analysis is like magical. No, it's just that some banks have the ability to influence opinion in other sectors better than other banks do. And very often when you have a stock that has had no sell side opinion in, in six months and Morgan Stanley shows up with 80% upside targets, the stock's going to move. That is a high probability outcome to bet on. That's not like, like the chances that you buy a solar name the day Morgan Stanley upgrades it with 110% upside and the stock drops 10% intraday is extremely low, extremely low. What's most likely going to happen is going to go up and you're going to wonder how much it's going to go up. And that's the harder part of that equation. And it's like, you know, and I'm not saying buy every Morgan Stanley upgrade either, right? It depends. Okay, what does the coverage look like in the last few months? Is the sector hot? Does the volume look good on these charts? Are the charts set, set up themselves technically ready for a breakout? All of these things matter to make this coherent opinion to say, yeah, the stock's worth trading based on this catalyst. You know, and it, again, doesn't have to be sell side. It can be news. It can be an, a, a tidbit detail in an SEC filing. It can be any of these things, an offering above the share price that nobody, that nobody hears about or nobody understands. Um, you know, headline-driven sell-offs where people don't read the article. Like, I mean, th- there are catalysts of all sorts that you can make a quality distinction on. But I don't just blindly slap zero DTEs and just YOLO stuff. No, it's a it's a refined process. Wait, you, you don't like money, huh? You don't like money. <laughs> no, I mean, look, there are a handful of times I've traded zero DTs, right? But like, there are, there are times where I trade much further dated contracts and do very well. Like my eye on Q position. Those are twenty twenty five contracts. They're up three hundred percent. It's like you, I I don't I actually rarely trade zero DT. I might occasionally trade weeklies. Like last week, I traded a lot of weeklies because the market was ripping hot and I was just striking while the iron was hot. But most weeks I'll trade months out expirations to get controlled exposure to a catalyst. Because again, I'm rarely buying stocks for fundamental reasons unless I'm investing in them. Like the lithium stocks that I always talk about, those are investments. That's an entirely different case, you know, but outside of my investments, I don't care. I don't care if the stock six months from now is going to be 50% lower. Like the same thing with sphere entertainment. Like I don't, I didn't give a shit about that. I just knew they launched in Vegas the four weeks later, London one and one. Dubai but those videos were so cool. <laughs> no, it's not even the videos were cool. It's just that there was an enormous amount of marketing hype. There was a direct catalyst. There was. No, but there demand. was one guy literally on our space stock talk that hadn't seen it. Somebody fl- flipped him the um, the videos from Twitter. I remember that. Yeah, that was. Oh, well, that's so good. I'm gonna buy. I'm gonna buy the stock. <laughs> yeah, that was stupid. I remember that. Okay, well, that did, didn't uh, Peter Lynch have a famous saying where? Uh, you do a lot of research on what microwave to buy, but when it comes to your entire network, uh, you just take a random tip from a from some guy on a bus or whatever it is. It's like, yeah, put all your money into this one. 
It's like, oh, Sphere, cool. I'm putting all my life savings in it. YOLO, yeah, that's right. But that, yeah, that was funny. I just think there's controlled forms of short-term trading that I think if people have the time, which then that's the number one thing is it takes a lot of time. But I think there are controlled forms of short-term trading that can be consistent. I really do believe that. But it takes a lot of work. I'm not pretending that it doesn't take a lot of work. Um, it takes a lot of work and it takes like, you know, a little bit of subjective skill too, the ability to differentiate those things and, you know, market experience to know when a call is bullshit. Or if an analyst is raising a price target just because the stock went up, right? Like those things are hard to spot and that takes experience. I'm not pretending that it doesn't, but um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, my, my opinion on short-term trading used to be very much like most people's is, is that like, it's just gambling and it's stupid. And I went through a bunch of strategies. Like, man, when I first started, like when I was 18, 19, I was doing like OTC stocks back then. And like, I tried everything. I went OTC stocks. I did options only. I did large caps. I did small caps. I tried to be a fundamental investor for three years. I tried all of these things. And I just eventually settled on the thing that worked consistently for me. And I think it varies from person to person. But you know, I think everyone should just find a style that works for them. If the if you make money, that is the ultimate barometer, I think. If you are earning money consistently, whether you're investing for 25 years or whether you're trading over a weekly or monthly time frame, if you're making money consistently, then I think you're good, right? Like, I mean, the S&P 500 is up like, what, 10% in the past three months. My portfolio is up 76%. So I'll take that out performance. Like, for me, that's worth the time I put into actively trade, you know? So, um, yeah. That's my that's my two cents. Weimar, what you got? So, one of the things uh, that I started to notice in 2021, and in fact, at the time, B of A's economist was at my work talking, so we always have people in. And I asked him about this. I was like, what do you think of the retirements right now? Because stock returns have been so good. And he's like, actually, that's something we're researching right now. And he started to talk about that, how that's starting to be a problem, and it was driving down some of the labor force. Um, so a lot of that more like my dad retired, he retired five years early because his stocks were out of time. I think he was like 57 and, uh, he was planning on retiring, I think at 62. So he retired five years early. A bunch of people at my work retired up to a decade early in some cases, um, at the bank I worked at. And it was a big driver of some of the labor shortages we were seeing. And it was purely driven by the fact that, you know, Stocks went up 25% in 2019, and then in 2020, they went up over 20%, and then they went up over 20% again. So these people are sitting on these just monster gains that put them years ahead of where they needed to be to retire. And you can see this actually in the data now. There were a lot of excess retirements for some of those older cohorts. And I wonder if the Fed isn't thinking about that as they uh, consider whether to hike once, twice, three times, etc. In fact, I think Yellen today mentioned that she wouldn't put too much stock in the CPI number right now. So I found that kind of interesting. David, why would you say something like what, that? Weimar, that they're going to try to crash the stock market to get people back to work? <laughs> Not to get people back to work, but to calm retirements. You've got to imagine if stocks go back up to where they were and just keep rising, well, people are, they're still going to be 60% ahead of where they were three or four years ago. So if you had a million dollar account, it's worth 1.6 million or whatever it is. And the act, just if you were all long equities, which many are now, many people are all in equities. 
and, and how much do you think of these retirements actually liquidating 100% lump sum? But most of the time, and this is just uh, anecdotally in, that, that I've been seeing, it, it's very one within the beneficiary claims that the actual retiree is going to have. And so by virtue, we actually just see a net, uh, a net let's say, uh, um, uh, um, actually, depending on the, uh, the inflows versus the outflows of the actual pension structure that's occurring, we see a net negative uh, response towards the actual inflows in that sense. It's not. It's an. It's an. It's a, a non-matter in that sense. Specifically, in the amount of retirees that we're seeing, um, it's only if we see the the actual increase in retirees. This is where we see compressions within pension fund solvency, not liquidity, but solvency. Yeah, and one other thing I'll say, I've I've encountered quite a few people on Spaces who used to work, but now they're full-time traders. I don't know how big of a trend that is, but. I certainly saw a lot of it. Most of the people I know that that have done that have gotten wiped out. I mean, for me, I when I became a full time trader is when I when I left med school and I kind of didn't have a choice. My back was against the wall and I kind of had to make money. But um, I think a lot of the people who started during twenty twenty, like with stimulus money or whatever, they've gotten wiped out. Like I remember in twenty twenty, a lot of the accounts that were around here like aren't even here anymore. Uh, Will they come back now? I mean, maybe in the next. Stimulus. To, to our prior statement, when Stock Talk mentioned that we saw a historical opening of accounts throughout 2020 to 2021, in 2022, after we saw a massive compression, we, we saw the actual same historical closing of these accounts. Uh, I just wanted to ring that bell. But I, I, again, Bill, I think, is accurate when he mentioned um, this is why we see this passive evolution within markets, because most of the time, most people don't have the competencies and or wills to understand the nuances of market participation as talk talk does it right and so by definition they're much more inclined to say i'm going to master my work and my field and my career and allow my financial development to be delegated towards let's say hopefully a fiduciary responsible entity and now comes the question of fiduciary responsibilities in that sense and how we actually appropriately manage these flows right especially considering like and this is a, a big idea right the, the, the lack of fundamental developments as long as money is coming in i am a net buyer and if net money wants to come out, I am a net seller, non, uh, non-implicit of, let's say, indexed uh, fundamentals. And so that's actually impactful in other ways. But I don't think it's like as dangerous as a lot of the prevailing thinkers would think. And a lot of, let's say, the aggressions that we were seeing around it, I, I think it was over aggression because by definition, we've only been seeing an apathetic development. Um, my argument is the only time this becomes an important factor is when we see ex-retirees higher than the net inflows of these actual uh, pension structures and insurance structures, and then creating an actual solvency crunch. And then when that manifests into a liquidity crunch in the sense of market participation, that's only a, a given time bomb. Well, as a question, like, I mean, like, where is this money coming from? Because like you're talking about liquidity, right? The liquidity is going up, right? So the M2 supply, money supply going down, the credit crunch, like hard to get loan approved, right? And I don't know, the last, last report from the BAC, Bank of America, they said they only have 2% commercial, like, related loans. They said they safe. So what makes it confusing? Like, it's not like Fed doing QT right now. Where is the money coming from, the liquidity? It's so confusing. It, I it's, horrible. It. 
It's four hundred one k's, and the, the well, Fed Bell balance sheet, the, the Fed balance sheet is is essentially net, uh, sorry, net negative because essentially they're only receiving the inflows from the BTFP, and like obviously when we're looking at the the, the, the attractions that we were supposed to be having, it's not as severe, but we're still seeing the Soma balance sheet slightly lower than the actual January lows that we saw at the earlier six months. Why, Mar? Sorry for interrupting you. No, I was actually, I'll just say what I know Bill's going to say. It, a lot of it's coming from the reverse repo facility, and that's 100% true. One of the things that happened in 2022, we were still doing QE, but it was all being sterilized at the reverse repo facility because they didn't want money market fund rates going negative for the prime government funds. So they were basically letting them park money at the Fed at five BIPs, as well as some other participants. And what that did is it eventually filled up to, you know, give or take two trillion recently and went over. Well, now it's been running down. So a lot of the net liquidity that's been flowing into the market is from that. But a lot of it is just the stock market is a little bit detached from, say, uh, banks and uh, bonds and all that type of stuff now. So it's almost like a different pool. But on net, that's where it's coming from. I'll caveat that, though. And say there's 83 billion a month coming out still in the form of QT that the Fed's doing. So, a bit of a give and take there. I think it's also risk. I think it's also risk appetite. Like risk appetite, right, is increasing. Like I think what happened towards late 2022 was there was still a lot of money sloshing around from fiscal stimulus and the pandemic, but people were scared in 2022, right? The you know any space you came onto here, like it was the bears were growling pretty pretty severely, and so I think a lot of people went into T-bills or, or you know, uh, bonds for safety, right? Uh, thinking the market was going to crash. And then when the market didn't crash, like what ends up happening, right? It's like, it's like a, the, my favorite sort of anecdote about this is the way Buffett describes it, right? When people f- have fear, it's like somebody yelling fire in a crowded theater, right? Everybody rushes out immediately. But then when the fi- there is no fire, it's not like everybody rushes back in. It's like they start coming in two and three at a time. And that's what's happening, right, since basically October. It's like nobody believed the market was going to go higher. Uh, everybody was worried that, you know, the, the Fed was going to, you know, crash the economy into a recession. So everybody got kind of scared and went into sort of, quote, unquote, safe assets. And now two and three at a time since, like, October of last year, they're coming back into the market because they, they see prices going higher. Now, is that, you know... Does, is the market undervalued or overvalued? I, you know, I don't know. Um, it doesn't feel undervalued anymore. It certainly felt undervalued last October. But I think it's just risk appetite. I think the money was always there. It's just now coming into stocks because people feel, feel you know, the all clear signals been given. Such a really- Thank you for the answer. Right? Uh, and yeah, just like um, also like I think the equity, what they say that the QE may be coming, right? They, they might think like, oh, it's like credit card coming, maybe the QE will coming soon. Right? And if you talk about the like, the Fed balance sheet, right? It's not like go lower than 2020. It was like two trillion. Now it's like what eight? It's supposed to be like last year, like nine. So maybe go higher to 15. I don't know. They might keep doing the QE. That's why the equity market maybe they see that in 2024 or 2025. Maybe they just why keep buying now. I don't know. It's kind of like my 
my kind of like opinion. Yeah, again, and I that that was a question I had for Bill, and because I think it, it's infinitely more complicated how actually QE and QT is is, is stimulative or counter stimulative towards market participation, um, especially when we're considering the majority of that balance sheet being fixed income. And so, by definition, how it's getting distilled to the equity market is fairly nuanced and complicated. Um, and I, I think it's still going to be um, uh, revised and uh, let's say reviewed for for a longer term period because we still don't have conclusive ideas as to how exactly it's been implicated. Um, Money, I saw you unmuted and then Deep, we have your hand up. So Money, go ahead and then Deep. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Really great commentary, but I would like to inject something else from another perspective that um, you have money chasing tail right now, not retail. And that's what like I think most of us are used to that you see that there's like a retail influx there have been a lot of people sitting on the sidelines and so there ain't no money like big money chasing some tail so when you look at what's moving and it's a lot of this shit stuff there's been positioning already kind of early on but why because you're able to actually get that beta like you're able to get that percentage gain you're able to get that stuff and and carvana will always be a shit company but at the same time you have to kind of stop thinking and sometimes some of that could be what gets in your way of just like where there is a technical setup and I think that's a lot of what we're seeing right now is just a big chase into I have to get exposure and how do you think like most people will get exposure um, going with something that can short squeeze like UPST because if you've looked at that one there's been a ton of dark flow activity there's been some options flow like millions which is so unusual for that name because it really is a shit company like end of the day that's not where you want to invest but if you're looking to kind of just turn some revenue you're going to find that I want to go back to what Stock Talk was talking about um, because I joined a little bit late, but got on the tail end of the uh, solar names. And that, that's been on my radar ahead of any kind of analyst update because we had some um, options flow come into TAN. And TAN is a solar ETF, and you don't see a lot there. And so there was already a little bit of a tension uh, there, and it was way out of the money. They're positioned for 72176 calls. Those went way underwater and they started coming back into 81875 calls. But what was so interesting in such a dichotomy was that TAN saw great money flow. None of the individual names did and they weren't moving. So once you start to see where you get positioning come through there, because um, an ETF isn't going to move just because it's an ETF and somebody like light the fire in their ass. It's going to move because individual stocks are going to move. So you you do want to kind of pay attention to where you have some of that possible rotation. And that's one of the things that like I really love and I love to be able to focus on is like, hey, here, this is extremely beat up and we've got stuff over here. And it kind of can give you some of that, you know, early entry um, or at least a heads up to make sure that it, you're setting alerts for breakouts. If you're a technical trader, I don't want you to trade like me. We're not all going to be the same. We're going to be looking at different things. Some people are fundamental, technical. Um, I like money flow. So it just, it's, it's all going to be different. But at least you kind of have a little bit of insight to where 
you're starting to see some sector rotation. And if anything, that's what I love most because it gives you a whole basket of stocks to work off of and you get to kind of go through charts, find your setups, find what works for you and your personal trading style and then kind of go from there. And I appreciate the kind words. Thank you, David. Yeah. Question a bit for the money flow. Like um, how, uh, I mean, like, how do you know is that one a part of the hedge? What if let's say like a call or like put, right? What if actually that their actual position is like short, but they just buy maybe buy call or just want to like for short term, right? How do you know it's like a bullish for, or could be like, I don't know, well, could be opposite. Yeah, no, I mean like, absolutely. You can certainly see that. And and I wouldn't know that. There's nothing that's going to tell me that. Um, but I'm kind of a mesh trader in the sense that I'm looking not only at the flow that comes in, I go, as soon as I see flow come in, I'd go to the chart and then look that up and kind of get a feel for, you know, what's coming in. And if it fits my criteria, it does. Like I want to see that coming in at an area of support, not something that's overextended. There's nothing that's going to tell me that. But at the same time, I I like to use a lot of layering, meaning, um, you know, if I see XBI call flow come in and then all of a sudden I see LABU and it's a three times triple leverage long XBI, that gives me that other adage to go, okay, but like there's some serious conviction coming in. It doesn't mean it's the same person. It doesn't mean it's the same house or anything like that. But if I can start to layer different things that are just kind of really checking off some boxes, I feel a lot more confident with, you know, that trade. Yeah. One thing I'll add is I'm not like a flow centric trader, but I do look at flow on most of the stocks that I trade just as a point of confluence and invest to your point. It's part of the reason why like index flow is so useless. Like when I see people posting like QQQ or spy flow, it's useless because there's so much flow on those names that, you can't possibly know if somebody is hedging an equity position in shares of those names or if somebody is taking a bi-directional bet. It's just way too much. And so where I personally focus or where I think it's meaningful is on names that typically don't see options activity. So on names where you know that there is not normally options activity, you can say, whoa, that's weird. Somebody's taking a two and a half million dollar one leg unidirectional bet on a stock that never sees options flow. That could be significant. And if it's a stock you're already looking at because the chart looks nice and there's a catalyst and then you see that type of confirmatory flow, then it just adds conviction to your position. Right. Like this happens all the time. Like, you know, when, when we're trading like with TSDR, who's who's in our community, you know, he'll like a chart sometimes and then I'll wake up in the morning and be doing my catalyst research and I'm and I'll go, dude, that chart you were looking at, it has a catalyst, too. And then, you know, one or maybe our new flow guy or one of us will go check in the flow and say, and the flow has had crazy millions of dollars of inflow too. like that's confluence. That's just adding data to your decision. Right. Trading is just a game of like taking data and making a decision. That's all it is. I agree. I, agree. I definitely yeah. like like a Microsoft, like you said today, right? Kind of like a couple seconds before the news, like the call, like three forty four, it's jump like twenty bucks, right? I mean, but again, like for the like the big companies, it's very hard because like the so many like um flow like call put call put call put. It's not like it's not like a small like you said like small company, yeah. right? For the bigger company, I feel like harder, right? Like Tesla, yeah. Microsoft, yeah. Nvidia. Right? You were on every part of what 
Like, I don't, I actually exclude all of that flow in the mega caps because there really isn't, for me personally, an edge because they are the most heavily traded, even from a stock perspective, you will be chasing tail trying to find out up, down, up, down, up, down, because what most people don't, don't, don't even take into consideration is that they are just traded. So you can come into some calls in the morning, you get a $1, $2 pop, you're closing them at 11 o'clock in the morning. And none of that actually settles or stays in open interest. And I'm really with like stock talk. And I like that he brought that up. It's that unusual stuff because let's like really take a look at this market and kind of where it's been different in a lot of ways where when we had down days before everything was red, you can have spy down and you can have a grid of charts. If you're like, that good that are all green it's okay like it's an individual name game at this point and some of these are still running despite what the overall market is doing or despite what their individual index is doing so i don't look at um i'll i'll still definitely take note of kind of what's coming in but i don't trade those are not the names i trade like i want somebody to come light up bj uh in some calls because you never see that and it's going to have a reaction because it's so rare and especially because of so many growth names that we have coming through like iwm is set up well 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 money you know uh one thing if i could just interject for a second is just sure. the um, the implied uh correlations uh are are like at all time lows right now so correlation is just you know how those stocks move together um and we're looking at the lowest implied correlation since before the global financial crisis um so you know that's why it's been uh, like a wider level of dispersion stock pickers market yeah it's, yeah. it's been a stock pickers market I, I i think personally just my own opinion I think that the the drainage of the reverse repo facility and and the movement of uh, those flows into uh, money market funds, which are then buying treasuries and then lending that cash to broker dealers, uh, you know, at a at a longer term to maturity, and at you know much more favorable borrow rates, is I think like the most significant aspect of the market right now. Well, I like what, what the stock talk news about and, and money flow as well, right? Like today, the Microsoft about the news, that's very good. And what do you think the correlation make it like detached, you know, like the fixed correlation yield, like a bond stock? What do you think kind of like out of the textbook? What do you think like this, why happen? Like the, the correlation and everything, right? I thought like we know like sometimes, but let's say when the AAA, like, so like, I mean, it's, it's just another way to reduce your risk, right? Like, most of the time in a recession, correlations go to one. Everything moves in tandem. So if you have, you know, certain parts of the index which are going up, like Money was saying, you have certain parts of the index which are going down, you have wider dispersion and it reduces your overall risk of your portfolio and it, and it suppresses volatility. Yeah, and on the point that you were making, um, 
earlier, uh, and this isn't related to correlation, but invest to, to kind of simplify what MoneyFlow was saying about, you know, you were talking about, hey, on Tesla and, and Apple and stuff like, you, you know, the flow is impossible to discern. That's the same issue as I was highlighting in the indexes because it's because of liquidity. So generally speaking, the more liquid an options chain, the less readable it is. That's like a very good rule of thumb. So if you have, you know, tens of thousands of OI on every contract on the chain, you're not going to be able to tell your foot from your head. Like it's, you, 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 there's way too much flow. And so where, where it's material is where, where the chains are dead. Okay. Where you're going to like a November strike and it has zero OI, zero OI, zero OI. And then all of a sudden $5 out of the money, there's $10 million of open of, of, of OI, you know, or not, you know, but you can make, a pretty decent assumption that someone is taking a directional bet in those yep. cases. Um, and, and a lot of times, because it, you know, if it is really meaningful, it's too big of a position to be used as a hedge or it's too far out of the money to be used as effective hedge. So you can kind of like, you know, sort through the data and make that conclusion. But, you know, for me, the, the only times I really ever pay attention to it is on the mid cap names that have options chains that are not active options chains. Oof, That's where I found the movers. most. You are going to get so, some so, yeah. like, like Like a handful of these, so, like so from the last so few weeks, trades that so, we took. Like, yeah. Go for it, Darren. Sorry. So, so, tape. they know that you can see it. Right, because it's held overnight. That's risk that's being held overnight. Volumes, you know, intraday that are opened and closed, like like money saying where it doesn't even show up in the open interest because they're buying or selling, you know, within a matter of minutes, hours, or before settlement at the end of the day. So. Yeah, it's open always interest. OI. It can be volume driven too, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but keep in mind, if you are only looking at open interest, and I'm not assuming that you do, I'm just saying, you know, for the group for education, if you're seeing open interest hit the tape in the options market, they know that you know that, and and so you know either they're okay. Real time volume is is much more meaningful. I agree. Yeah, real-time yeah. volume flow into the contracts is more meaningful. And that's why, you know, most of the people that alert flow alert real-time volume flow as well. But, um, yeah, the point is really just that you use it as a tool of confluence, right? Like, you know, for me, I just use it as a supplementary data point. So, like, if, if I already like the chart, I already like the stock, it's a great catalyst, and the flow is good, cool. That's another checkbox, right? Like, and just gives me more conviction. So that's really what, what it is for me. I totally agree. But so, like, what's the so so what I, so what I want to say is the like in terms of the biggest dollar amount impact like over the last 90 days we've seen 592 billion dollars get get drained out of the reverse repo facility so so I mean we can talk about you know other dollar amounts like in in, in Tesla you know options land but in terms of it, just like the the total dollar amount that that's had the biggest impact on the market, in my opinion, over the next ninety days, and I think you know outside of like foreign uh, you know FX reserve flows, like that that's like the largest dollar amount that I think is 
is, is propping this market up, which is a liquidity-driven market. Yeah, question for Darren. Like, I mean, like, if let's say they know the flows, like, we, 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 like you said, like, we, they know we will buy. So, I mean, like, it's not, like, going to help them to support, like, their, you know, their trade, right? Because, like, if, if they buy, we buy, they will get even higher option because they're the one who, who bought first, right? I mean, like, is that anything bad? Who are you When you say they, who, who do you mean? I mean, like, no, you just say it like, you said, like, they know the flow, right? You said, like, you, you talk about the big players, right? Like, the institutional, they put the bad, let's say they buy call, and we know we follow them. So, and you basically say, and in my assumption, you seems like, say, like, it's not good to, they know that, and they might mess up with us, right? They may do something bad to us. Maybe they sell before before they, you know, maybe when, when they buy, we buy, they, they sell it. So, they can just, like, take the liquidity, right? So, is that something bad? Not, not really, right? If they, if they, if we buy, we follow them. Then it just keep increasing the option. They also make more money. We also make more money too, right? Is it, is it like something bad if they know we follow them? No, I'm not saying that it's like a negative connotation one way or the other. I think it's just if you know that that they know that you can see their, you know, open interest that's hitting the tape and not everybody that's trading options is getting intraday volumes printed, you know, they could, uh, you know, have the appearance of, of one type of positioning when in reality, you know, based off of how they're trading it throughout the day, it could be completely uh, different. Yeah. You, you get to see the flop, you get to see the flop and, and how you position around that is going to be different. And a lot of what I like to do is, is absolutely, um, continue to check open interest and i think that's something that retail doesn't do enough of that's really really important because when we're talking about or if you're ever seeing anything and i don't care who you use what you use whatever um you can see a large order come in and let's say off of that large order just because there's that interest you know you have a stock pop up one two or if you're microsoft a gazillion dollars today um they could be closing that out and it never settles the next day. So I don't like, I'm, I'm not on here to advocate or to promote um, the options flow is the best tool. And I think stock talk said that the best way you have to find your edge, like something you can read, something you can understand, something that makes sense to you. Um, don't, don't just follow what makes sense to everybody else because you may not have full understanding there. And I just really want to kind of like hone in on that a little bit, just because um, this is what I sit with all the time. This, this is like, I, I'm, I, I'm really good at this. Uh, it, I don't expect everybody else to be and and it, you may not see it the same way. And I don't mean that from an arrogant perspective, but, there's little things that you're going to be able to pick up on and read. Um, but you have to be able to monitor that other stuff. If they come in, they could also ask exit. Are you able to see that they exited? Are you looking for that? And I think that's probably one of the biggest things that most people don't do is even monitor that. So really, really important monitor OI. I totally agree with that. Yeah. And then, and then I, I usually, like, what I do, like I see the news, like what the stock says, I would just go for it. I mean, because sometimes, you know, like you don't have time. It's just like 10 seconds. You know, sometimes they just put like 
literally like 10 like one minute before the news and it just like going up so high so i mean i agree with that i mean like about the oi like the open interest like you said that's definitely need to pay more attention to but yeah many times i i feel like i don't have like not not time but it's kind of like too late if i <laughs> if i want to get more confirmation it's just like going high like within a minute like one two minutes like when the news like microsoft today right yeah um well deep deep's been uh waiting here for a little bit we'll let him get his question in and then i think uh That'll be the last one, and then we'll we'll wrap it up here. Yeah, no, uh, very interesting conversation. I was listening for like the last uh, 30-odd minutes. Look, um, you know, I think uh, this is a very, very interesting time in, uh, in human history because, you know, I remember around the same time last year, everyone was in, um, you know, this uh, extreme kind of fear stage. You know, many people were thinking that we could see 3,200 or 3,000 on the S&P and there were no buyers. And, you know, there was a lot of panic selling that was going on and, and short sellers were literally getting uh you know, I mean, some of them just printing millions of dollars in a week. Um, some of them that I know in the in the industry, it's it's insane how uh, how the tides have turned. Um, you know, the tides have turned for the better because I do believe that over time, equity indexes do appreciate. And um, you know, generally speaking, if you're not, you know, someone who's a regular market participant or uh, kind of doing this for a living, most people should generally you know go long the market over time. Um, you know, sometimes, right, you can catch a bad company and, and short it and, and make a lot of money from it uh, if you if you time the exit. But generally speaking, good companies do appreciate over time and good management teams do reward their shareholders. So uh, just some kudos to, uh, to retail. I do so want to say, though, I, 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 dip, would, I, dip, I would I would push back a little bit, though. I would push back a little bit. And one of the things I push back on is we had to undergo a regional banking crisis, right, where there was collateral damage that happened and the federal reserve stepped in and you know it it hasn't been like oh you know like uh great like everything is you know hunky dory i think there's been significant steps that have been taken to mitigate the the actual risk that's in the market and you know we're yeah it still hasn't you know, it's I'd, just I'd been kicked down back. the road. So, okay, so 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 uh, yeah. Silicon Valley Bank going under and First Republic going under is 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 what? It, so that was a, a non-risk event like that. No, I mean, you, you hear me out. Look, I'm not saying that you know the Fed hasn't injected liquidity into into the banks because they certainly have. Uh, what I'm saying is that I, I think it's a bit too premature to say that there's no real risk to equities um, in the second half of the year or even into next year. I think a lot of people right, are, are in this uh, kind of euphoria stage of uh, extreme greed. And um, at least in my lifetime, I've seen extreme greed get punished and punished hard. I'm not saying that the, uh, the market's going to sell off to October lows tomorrow or next week or even six months from now. We could have a soft landing and, and we can continue this rally and multiples could continue to expand well beyond all-time highs, right? Um, I'm open to that possibility. But, um, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting how there's so much fear of missing out right now. Um, while fundamentals, in my honest, uh, humble opinion, just uh, don't, uh, don't really match up. And I think we'll start to see, I mean, we're already starting to see it, right? I mean, a lot of these companies, 
They uh, they have already posted uh, their earnings. They have had record quarters, but uh, the stocks have been starting to sell off because um, you know a lot of investors just don't see uh, multiples expanding uh, from here, um, especially in uh, very high quality names. You saw that with Delta. Uh, you saw that with uh, Lockheed Martin today. Tomorrow, we're going to get Goldman in the morning, which is projected to report its worst ever quarter, which is a, a very, very important bank on the street. We'll get big tech uh, next week um, and the week after that as well, series of big tech companies. Uh, Microsoft is at an all-time high. Can uh, multiples expand for these companies beyond their all-time highs uh, or even 52-week highs uh, that they keep on making? Sure. Uh, I mean, I'm not... I'm not uh, kind of uh, someone who's going to say, you know, just short the shit out of everything. But I, I do think that uh, there's a real risk of, uh, of valuations kind of uh, appreciating further from here. Um, you know, there are companies that are undervalued and, and you can find some some great, uh, great uh, alpha from there. But, you know, I, I tend to be more cautious from here. Um, and I think compared to the last quarter's earnings reports where expectations we're very low, and and generally speaking, we were still kind of very much sold off from the bear market. I think this time around, right, uh, we're we're kind of at a stage where expectations are, are pretty high, and um, you know to justify further multiple expansion, you really got to see these companies nail their guidance and uh, and really guide higher. Um, otherwise, there's no real point to uh, being long at uh, at this stage. But yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be interesting. It varies from industry to industry, sector to sector. Um, I am of the opinion we're in a rolling recession uh, where there's going to be industries that are struggling and there are several industries that are struggling. That's what people don't don't see in the bigger picture. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, other industries don't rally or other industries don't see good times. I mean, nobody wanted to put their money into tech last year. And now everybody is like at this fear of missing out stage into tech and pouring record inflows into tech. And I think, um, you know. Some of the underappreciated areas of the market may yeah, rally. Yeah, yeah, I agree with the fundamental too. But I mean, like, if you talk about the EPS, right? I mean, historically speaking, like, it's always EPS always like you know, like if you see about the bottom EPS in the stock, right? EPS kind of like delay. If you talk about the bottom, you want to wait until the earnings like bottom. It will be like too late to buy the stock, right? Because it's kind of like a delay between the EPS bottom and the stock bottom, right? Maybe like six months could be one year, right? So I mean, I, I read one report from i think fidelity right they, they, they kind of like say oh, most of the time actually what what if actually like you know people are waiting for earnings to be bottom maybe it's too late right because we know that six months before they bottom the stock bottom first right so and i think i think like you said also yeah, it's hard to believe but now like what people say that you know they lower the guidance already if you talk about the high expectation i kind of like disagree because they actually lower the guidance already in the first uh q1 so now they have like very low, like a uh, 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 like say estimation. It's very hard, uh, very easy to bids now because yeah, they're low. I think, low I, I think it depends on what industry you're talking about. But I mean, expectations are very high for big tech this quarter. I mean, especially after the guidance that Nvidia and some of these companies that have been driving the market, right? The Magnificent Seven, uh, they have given uh, very high guidance, and and as a result, I mean, you know, the companies have been doing well with their with their stock valuations and performance, right? And and some of that is justified. I mean, some of these companies are doing some groundbreaking work in AI, and they have some groundbreaking technology. However, for me to see them kind of uh, create new all-time highs after they've already created all-time highs or near 52-week highs after setting another 52-week high up like a week or two ago, I, uh, I tend to be more cautious than optimistic. Um, you don't have to share my view, 
um, you know, and, and probably I would say nine out of 10 people who, who are probably, you know, into the stock market, they don't like short sellers, but, uh, I think short sellers are necessary to, uh, to humble the market and valuations in check for what they really should be. Right. Because if we have a runaway market, we are just creating another asset bubble and that asset bubble will eventually crash. Yeah, um, and, I, I know, I know, I know, but I mean, I'm also like do long and short. I mean, don't get me wrong. I also like short like a lot of tech 2022, right? I mean, I also do long and short, but like you said about the equity valuation, like Microsoft, they can, they can justify their valuation, like uh, Nvidia, they, they can do it, right? So I just feel like, and also market is not just like big seven. Well, what right? we're about to like, find out is my point. I mean, you I, know, I, I just missed Bill. Yeah. I was trying to ask you a question. Snap. Sorry, guys. Continue. Yeah, I was I was going to say we're we're about to find out. I mean, you know, you're you're going to get earnings, right? If if you want to see the financial health of any company, you look at their earnings report and you listen to the call, and you listen to the call closely to see what uh, what the future expectations are. To be perfectly honest with you, right? Um, I, I have a hard time being bullish uh, at uh, these uh, all time highs for a lot of these stocks, um, you know. And I think so far my thesis has been more or less correct. If you look at what's been happening to companies that have already reported, right? I mean, Lockheed Martin reported their best ever quarter and they gave their best ever guidance. Uh, the stock sold off heavily today. Uh, same thing with Delta. I mean, Delta had uh, a phenomenal quarter and phenomenal guidance and they sold off heavily as well. Um, I, I think that a lot of people, right, and I think this is a classic mistake of, of retail investors and, and this fear of missing out mentality or follow the herd mentality is that, you know, People like to kind of come in, right, when everything is hot and, and, you know, people are kind of afraid of missing out on the next big thing. But nobody wants to buy something when it's cheap and, uh, and nobody wants to touch it, right? And it's funny how people are loving Meta at this valuation, but nobody loved it when it was at 88 or 89 last yeah, year. Yeah, I, I do love right? Meta. So, I, I do love so, Meta, but it's not and, like and, if you and, see and, some analysts, now they upgrade, right? Like what are you going to do? Like you're going to follow the bank analysts every time they upgrade. Their stock. It will well, go sure, but, but you got to understand, mate, that that is a long-term price target. That's not a price target that they plan on tomorrow or day after tomorrow or even a, a week or even a few months from now. I mean, that's like their their one-year price target or for some analysts, it's even longer than that. Um, uh, you know, well, again. It's priced in, right? This, this always market. They, the equity always like price in now, right? Like, for example, like the, you know, like you said about, I know it's one year, usually 12 months analysts, but every time if you see the news, let's say about upgrade of tesla it will go two percent three percent it means they they price in the same day right i i know it's like 12 months technically yeah i know that but they price in i, I feel like the equity always like forward-looking pricing and that's why now like all well, the day, absolutely right? yeah absolutely equities are are forward-looking for the most part at least uh, you know i mean some people have a different theory but but that's my experience the problem is is that you know, and this is how I see the market. People can can see the market differently. I think that the good news is already priced in, um, and I'm not saying that we're going to see a recession and we're going to go back to October lows or see new lows. All I'm saying is, right, uh, don't be panicked if you see a pullback and you see a healthy pullback. Uh, yep. Um, yeah, I think you know, uh, we might yeah. we might see a little bit of a healthy pullback, but we've been ripping and rolling here for three hours now, so I. I appreciate everybody coming on. Uh, David and I host these starting uh, at 8 o'clock every Tuesday night. As I appreciate everybody coming up, Stock Talk, um, Money, uh, Money Flow Mel, Deep Barrett Investment. Um, you know, we had a bunch of great speakers previously as well. So uh, the space is recorded. So feel free to go back and give it a listen. Uh, also, shameless plug, I've uh, posted uh, my YouTube up in the nest. 
Uh, great macro insights podcast. I think you guys will love. So uh, be sure to check that out. Subscribe to the channel and uh, yeah, be on the lookout. Uh, follow everybody up here. There's going to be a lot more spaces this week. So thanks everybody for tuning in and uh, I'll see you guys on the other side. And uh, thank you very much, Brendan, for hosting the space. And I will give a, a quick shout out because it is well-deserved. Congratulations, Bar Chart, for obtaining the 90K follower. And it, great platform. It, it's well-deserved. And I love the initiation you guys do, essentially giving a lot of options and or data flows for individuals that need it. So thank you, guys. Yeah, shout out Bar Chart. All right, great stuff, guys. Y'all have a great rest of your night.